0: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician.
1: Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, a radio.com station. Live from the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr.
2: Marianne Ritchie. I'm not declaring a public health emergency of international concern today. As it was yesterday, the emergency committee was divided over whether the outbreak of novel coronavirus represents a fig or not.
3: Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education.
1: Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And we say hello on a Sunday morning, and we welcome everyone in here on Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. This is your radio doctor, and Dr. Marianne, as always, uh, in studio, great lineup, good show, a special guest going to join us by phone, and a special guest uh, with us in studio as well.
3: Thank you, Joe. Good morning, and good morning to our listeners. It's always great to be here. We learned so much great information about heart disease in February. One of the most important messages is to learn CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, the initial response when a person has a heart attack and those minutes being the difference between life and death. Now we switch gears and fill the month of March, Colon Cancer Awareness Month, with a lot of important messages. As always, I want to be your advocate, asking questions of our medical experts, our healthcare providers, so you can make better medical decisions for yourself and your loved ones. This morning, we welcome two very special guests, Dr. David Kastenberg, professor at Thomas Jefferson University, practices gastroenterology proud to say that we're colleagues when he admits it and uh, he's also the director of research for the division of gastroenterology and hepatology nationally recognized for his research in newer technologies for colon cancer screening and very popular because he is desperately trying to make the prep friendlier. Our second guest a little bit later by phone will be coach Billy Lang from my alma mater Hawk Hill St. Joseph's University. And he's going to talk to us about the special projects that the Coaches versus Cancer do with the American Cancer Society. So, welcome, Dave. So nice to have you here.
0: It's great to be here, Marianne. Thank you for having me.
3: So, let's begin our discussion with defining the word screening.
0: So, screening is when you have somebody who's average risk for a disease and they don't have any symptoms of that disease. And you do a test on them to see if they have that disorder, or they might have some condition that puts them at higher risk for that disorder. So, for example, we're talking—we're going to be talking about colon cancer screening. So, for colon, if we did a colonoscopy or some test to screen for colon cancer, we'd be looking for colon cancer or polyps, which are a precursor of cancer.
3: Right. So, there's a, a expression called precision medicine. We only have so many resources. And we don't want to do tests that could injure a patient, cause them harm with sedation, or that are invasive. So precision medicine means that we look at a group and we say, gee, it seems like colon cancer begins in our late 50s, mid to late 50s. So let's start screening everybody in America uh, at the age of 50 and see if we can find either a precancerous form or cancer at an early stage when maybe treatment would be more effective.
0: Right. That's 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 perfectly right.
3: So what are we looking for when we do these tests?
0: So when we um, screen for colon cancer, um, there's really two general approaches. One is to do a test that can identify cancer. And then there are other tests that can identify both cancer and the precursors of cancer. Um, those latter tests can help you prevent cancer. The former tests are good at finding people who actually have the cancer.
3: So the expression we use is we're looking for polyps. And a polyp is a small growth in the lining of your colon that shouldn't be there. And you've probably heard of polyps. They can be elsewhere in your body. You can have polyps in your uh, nasal passages, polyps in your stomach or uterus. But when we talk about polyps in the colon, we believe that they are, we know they're the precursors or the forerunners of colon cancer. Now, the caveat is not all polyps become cancer. Cancer always starts as a polyp, so no polyp is my friend. So when we go on our search and destroy missions, we remove all the polyps.
0: Right. We don't. Right. We don't know which polyps are going to be a problem and which ones won't. Um, so when we find polyps, we take them out.
3: Exactly. And we also have learned from years of data that a polyp begins um, in certain in a certain setting, and in the early stages, it's slightly irregular. The cells. And as the cells become progressively more irregular and then go to cancer, the data makes it suggest that it takes about 10 years to go from that very first stage to the cancerous stage. So that's why if somebody has a negative colonoscopy, meaning no polyps, chances are if a polyp starts the very next day, we can wait 10 years to look again. Would you say that's the reasoning?
0: Exactly. We don't know. I mean, every polyp is going to behave a little bit differently, but... You know, and we don't know exactly how long, but that's definitely the rationale for the 10-year interval. Mm-hmm. For someone who has a normal colonoscopy, we say come back in 10 years.
3: But we try to be humble when we do these procedures because one of the risks of colonoscopy is we could miss something really tiny. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. This Dr. Kastenberg has put so much energy into the bowel prep. If the prep isn't perfect, a little puddle or a little solid could hide a tiny 2-3 millimeter polyp, and that could be the beginning of a bad problem. Um, So we've been doing better. I say we collectively, GI doctors, primary care doctors with screening, mortality rates have definitely improved. We see decreased death rates um, due to colon cancer. Unfortunately, more than a third of age-appropriate Americans uh, are not even screened, and this is why we're trying so hard to convince people that it's a bearable test, get through the PrEP. When people say to me, gee, I don't want to drink the PrEP, it's just awful, I say, well, The alternative could be surgery, chemo, or radiation.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, colon cancer is a preventable disease. And there's a long lead time between, you know, when people get polyps and when they get cancer. So there's a lot of opportunities to intervene. Yes. And so it's just, you know, it's really a tragedy when, you know, people choose not to get screened. And, and, you know, when I'm talking, you know, when we when we make decisions, you know, there's there's risks of doing things and there's risks of not doing things. And for getting screened, you know, you know, the human nature is to worry about the risks and the complications of the procedure, which are so much more rare than the risk for actually getting colon cancer.
3: So what are the risks of colonoscopy?
0: So the number one risk, which is what nobody really thinks about, is that It's not that no test is a perfect test. Things can be missed. And so that, that is the number one risk. Uh, this, and there's things that, there's things that can be done in terms of prep and technique to, you know, decrease that, which we can talk about. The second risk, which everybody is familiar with, is the risk for perforation. That's a hole in the colon that could need an operation to fix. And that happens less than one out of every 2,000 people. And the third risk is bleeding. A teeny bit of bleeding is super common. Serious bleeding is a rare complication.
3: Yes. And so when I see a patient, and of course, we're going to talk about other risk factors, but when I see a patient who has no polyps, no reason to look again because family history or or something that would make us look at a, a shorter time interval, I say 10 years is a long time. I'm humble. If I missed anything, I want you, if a year from now, if three years from now, five years from now, between now and my, your return in 10 years. If you have any problem, you start to lose weight and can't explain it. You have a change in your bowel pattern, your rectal bleeding. You call me stat. My door is open. And in fact, if I do give people a 10-year ticket, I say, I want to see your pretty face at five years. I'll tie my hands behind my back, but I want you to come and just go over your whole history, including update your family history. Because if today I see you, normal colon, no, I don't have any family relatives with polyps or cancer not just cancer we look for colon polyps can bump the risk too um i want to review that in five years
0: you know marianne i tell the fellows this all the time um the scariest colonoscopy for me is a normal colonoscopy yes. yeah because that means i'm telling the patient i got a great look and you're going to come back in 10 years this is your
1: radio doctor here on talk radio 1210 wpht Stay with us as we go to the commercial break. On the other side of the break, we'll continue uh, our conversation, and we'll speak directly to the listeners who have not had a colonoscopy. We'll talk to them when come back.
3: Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com.
1: And as we come back to you on a Sunday morning here on talk radio twelve ten w p h t one uh, reminder for our listening audience, you can go to your radio doctor. Dot com And when you go to YourRadioDoctor.com, you'll have the ability to uh, communicate with Dr. Marianne. You can listen or download one of the previous shows uh, that aired uh, on uh, Sunday here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. And Dr. Marianne, you'll find uh, a very warm, receptive website, YourRadioDoctor.com.
3: Thanks again, and welcome back. We're interviewing Dr. David Kastenberg a uh, gastroenterologist extraordinaire from Jefferson. You know, Dave, I find it interesting um, when I, I do a lot of public speaking, as do you, and one of the things I share with people, I try to paint a picture just as people are listening to us now. I want them to walk away with an image. And a lot of speakers will begin by saying there will be 50,000 new cases of this or that this year, or 150,000 new cases of colon cancer. It means nothing. You say, look at the people in your book club. There are 10 of you. Look at the people in your gym. And a better take-home is one in three people over the age of 50 and one in two people over the age of 60 will have colon polyps. Get them out. What's the point? You know, when you compare this screening test also to other screening tests, and it's not a contest, all cancer screening are important. Number one cause of cancer death, what would you think, Joe? What would you guess is the number one cause of cancer death? Uh, Treatment. What is the number one cancer that people die from?
1: Lung cancer?
3: Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Go to the head of your class. Yes. But I think a lot of women would say breast cancer, mm-hmm. and some men might say prostate cancer, and they happen most commonly in men and women. Num- number one cause for cancer is this lung. Number two, that's our favorite number, don't step in number two, um, is colon cancer, when we combine men and women.
1: I so, mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm standing in the studio... Mm -hmm. with two doctors on a subject, and not embarrassed to say it, but mad at myself that I could admit on the air, Doc, after listening to you in that opening segment, and Dr. Marianne, I can say that at 55, I have not, I have not been screened yet.
3: So today's meant to be, Joe. Where's the net, Dave? (laughs) Well, no, we're,
1: we're going to see you soon.
3: Yes, we are. We're going to come and pick you up and take you out for lunch afterwards.
1: But I wonder. Go back to your statistic, and Doc, you can jump in here and fill this in, Marianne, Doctor Marianne. You referenced one third uh, of of individuals over not 50. over fifty not being screened. That's a significant num. That's a
0: significant number. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. about a third of patients who are eligible to be screened have not, either not been screened, and even more than that have been underscreened. So, mm-hmm. meaning that they may have done you know one of the um, approved tests for colon cancer screening, but they haven't really followed the interval. They've kind of fallen off the grid a little bit.
3: And the other thing is, when we say probably the number one risk factor is age, when you get to your fifties, we should look right behind that is. Know your family history. When you get together for Thanksgiving or, or some holiday, ask all of your relatives, have you had colonoscopy? We're in a much more open society. I mean, I know my parents used to bury their heads. They'd never talk about anything. My, my Irish mother would not even want to get a mammogram. What if they find something? I'd say, yeah, Mom, what if they find something? We can fix it. We can help you. But the, everybody's a lot more open about their discussions and sharing. And if you find family members that even have just polyps, it bumps your risk. So, Dave, tell us about family history and how that influences a person's risk.
0: Sure. Um, So about a third of colon cancers are associated with some sort of family history, but that means two-thirds have no family history. Exactly. So most people are in the two-thirds, so you don't Mm -hmm. need to have a family history to get screened. But Mm -hmm. if you have a family history, the most significant family history is going to be a first-degree relative with colon cancer, um, particularly under the age of 60. and And then we also have these things called advanced polyps, which means that it's a bigger or more serious polyp that um, has a certain number of features. And so either colon cancer or these advanced polyps um, under the age of 60 is very important. Um, And if you have one of these in in a first-degree relative, you want to start your screening with colonoscopy because you're higher risk, so we don't even talk about the other options. And you want to start at age 40, not age 50, or it may be earlier. You want to do it at 10 years before that person was diagnosed. So if you have a, I'm working with a medical student um, whose Mm. sibling uh, developed colon cancer in their 20s. That means all the siblings, all the first-degree relatives of that person who got colon cancer starts their colonoscopy 10 years before that.
3: So if that sibling, so first of all, a first-degree relative means somebody right next to you in the tree, either your parents, a brother, sister, or a child. God forbid any of them. But first degree means right next to you in the tree. Second degree relative would be an aunt, uncle, grandparent, uh, cousins, not so much. We don't count them quite as much. But um, So if one first degree relative bumps your risk two to four times. Right. And, and so on. The more first degree relatives, of course. So if this medical student has a sibling who was diagnosed at age 25, then he or she should begin at age 15.
0: Right. And that also leads, and and the other high risk is if there's two first-degree relatives, and regardless of their age, then they fall into the same high-risk category. The other thing is that we use the family history is so important for determining, for looking for for conditions that might put people at super high risk for colon cancer, so inherited conditions. So, for example, there's a disease called Lynch syndrome. Mm-hmm. which affects almost a million Americans and is has been diagnosed in maybe twenty thousand americans, so it's it's super under recognized and as you know um, it's although we consider it a colon cancer syndrome, it's not just a colon cancer it's no. a cancer syndrome, so you could have that 's why it's so important to take a family history because if you have family members, a lot of family members with ovarian or endometrial cancer or stomach cancer, particularly at young age then you're going to be thinking about Lynch. You're going to be thinking about colon cancer as well. So taking a family history is very important.
3: Exactly. And, you know, I consider myself, we are internists first. We're, we do residency internal medicine, then GI fellowship and GI specialty. When I was at Sloan Kettering, we used to send samples to Dr. Henry Lynch. This syndrome that we're talking about, actually, it was first uh, begun. The study was 1895 or so back in the 1800s. A doctor had uh, a neighbor who said to him, you know, I have this family history with multiple people with cancers. And he, I think they called it family J and they watched it and it would surface in the medical literature through the years. And then this Dr. Henry Lynch uh, called all the people related to that first family, found all the relatives and brought together 600, well, not all together, but he found the data on 650 people and described the syndrome now called Lynch. So these poor people not only get or an increase for colon cancer, they have endometrium, which means the lining of the uterus, ovarian, stomach, small intestine, kidney, ureter, brain, skin, maybe, maybe not breast, prostate, pancreas, because they're just common anyway. But it's so important to know your family history. If you don't remember anything else that we urge you to find out after tonight, um, that's really important.
0: Yeah. The other thing is um, well, a lot of these things seem scary, they're all, what's really super about finding these things is that entering screening programs for these various diseases can really decrease the chance that you're going to die from those disorders. And what's also very important is that your first-degree relatives, your neighbors, as you put it, um, can be affected by these. And so once you identify one person with these disorders, and Lynch is just one of many Mm -hmm. different colon cancer syndromes, then you have then you're able to go out and look at all the other family members neither identify them as having it or if they don't have it they're just an average risk person so you can take the worry away and they just get treated as a you know as a as someone who's average risk for that right. disease
3: so really it's a luxury to know whether you're in the higher risk category because you go with uh, somebody has lynch syndrome and there are different genotypes meaning different variations of it that's redundant um, but then you'd be more faithful getting gynecology exams and they start in your 30s every couple years um, and it would definitely ramp up the frequency and the variety of cancer screenings that we do
1: how do you get how do you get people to go how, how do you get the listeners out there
0: who haven't done it yet doc how do you, how, how do you get us off the stoop and get us to do it so I think um, <clears throat> making it so, Marianne, I think giving a concrete number, making it feel real. So, you know, talking about how many people get colon cancer nationally or, you know, that it's the second most common cause of death. I mean, that's important. But if you tell people that one out of every 20 people will get colon cancer, that's a very real number. So, you know, we're talking about, and they're, and they're worried about a colonoscopy and a, and a risk of perforation, a hole in the colon of one in less than one in 2,000. I'm telling you, you you have a one in twenty chance of getting colon cancer. That's that's not a good disease. It's it's a preventable disease, and you know we can talk about colonoscopy, but there's other good tests that are approved uh, to screen for colon cancer. You know, there's just zero controversy in screening for colon cancer. There are numerous societies: American Cancer Society, U.S. Preventative Services, U.S. Multi Society Task Force. There's all these um, societies that issue guidelines. There's no controversy about screening for colon cancer. There are some differences on what might be the best test and what might be the second choice, how to approach people, you know, et cetera. But the most important message is to get screened.
3: Well, and I think there are other risk factors we could talk about like inflammatory bowel disease. That would be ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. And depending how long the patient has had the disease, excuse me, how much of their bowel is involved, and the severity. Would determine at what point we might start doing a yearly colonoscopy with biopsies every so many uh, centimeters in the colon to look for precancer because some of those patients have multifocal precancerous changes that can lead to big surgery.
0: You're absolutely right. This is
1: your radio doctor here on Talk Radio 1210. WPHT. Thank you so much for listening on a Sunday morning and we hope you stay with us as we go to the commercial break. Still to come uh, on the Sunday morning show, Uh, Dr. Marianne has a special guest uh, joining us, the head men's basketball coach from St. Joe's University. Uh, We'll be along and we'll continue our conversation back in the morning.
0: Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie can be enjoyed on radio.com as well. And you can listen to the show at your convenience. Just go to radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand.
1: And back here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, this is Your Radio Doctor. Doc-
3: and welcome back. I am so excited because on the other line is the coach of the most awesome university on the planet, Hawk Hill St. <laughs> Joseph's University with Coach Billy Lang. Welcome, Coach. Thank you so much.
2: Hey, Dr. Richie, it is a pleasure <laughs> to be on your show. I'm Aww. looking forward to this time with you. Thank you for having me.
3: Well, as a at um, a, Hawk, a St. Joe graduate, uh, I think that St. Joe's University is so fortunate to have you. You're bringing your experience from being at Philadelphia University, which, by the way, is now Jefferson University. LaSalle, oh, yeah. Nova, Navy, the Sixers, and now at Hawk Hill. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing.
2: When, when you rattle all those off, all that just says is I'm getting older. That's uh, all that just told me. <laughs> and f- old,
3: Older and funner. That's what we say in our house.
2: Older. uh, Hey, listen, I go back so far that when I was at what you called Philly University, it started off as Philly. I was at Philly Textile. Oh, yeah.
3: I I had friends who went to textile. Well, what's really beautiful is coaches versus cancer. And this month being March, Colon Cancer Awareness Month, (laughs) I'm so excited to be going to the breakfast, the the 20 tip-off breakfast at the Palestra on Monday, March 16th. And for our listeners, that is the Monday after the weekend when all the March Madness teams are announced. So could you tell us a little sure. bit about the, um, the tip-off breakfast at the Palestra?
2: Well, though, regardless of which teams from the uh, City's Division One teams uh, make the NCAA tournament, everybody gathers um, for breakfast. You know, at this time right now, we should assume that Villanova will definitely get in. There will be some other – everybody has a chance because we can all win – our conference tournaments, and it's just a chance, one, to support each other. You know, although we we compete against each other during the season, I mean, the college basketball scene in Philadelphia is really like the the city's fifth professional sport. Like, it matters such a big deal to the fabric of our great city that it's a chance for us to support each other as we go out and um, compete nationally in the NCAA tournament. And then over and above that, it is also a fundraising opportunity for coaches versus cancer, which has been, you know, such an important part of this battle, especially when it comes to the city's six Division One schools.
3: Oh, sure. And coaches versus cancer, I should explain, is a nationwide collaboration between the That's American right. Cancer Society and the National Association of Basketball Coaches. And I know it evolved from University of Missouri's men's coach some years ago, Norm Stewart, challenged his uh, fans to give a dollar every time a three-point was made, and then the concept evolved right. and. The council, Coaches v. Cancer, started in 1998, and Philly, I understand, has the biggest return with the help of Fran Dunphy, Phil Martelli, Jay Wright, and now Coach Billy Lang. Uh, Philadelphia has raised over $17 million, so Coaches v. Cancer first started with just basketball, college basketball, but now it includes grade school through college. All sports can have their own tournaments to raise money for the American Cancer Society, which is just beautiful.
2: Coach Link. It, it's really amazing.
3: Yeah, it's it really is. really amazing. And a lot of heart and soul put into it. Now, in January, suits and sneakers. Coaches wear yeah. sneakers to raise awareness. Uh, and you're saving yeah. lives from cancer. What has that meant to you personally? Did you write any special names on your sneakers?
2: I did. So we 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 wore uh, pink laces in one and yellow laces in another. The, the pink laces re- represented a, a woman that is very close to our program, um it for me personally her name was and it is Angie Seely she was a Sixers super fan that we wanted um to just bring awareness to her fight against breast cancer the yellow sneakers represented Jack Claran, who is the
3: yes.
2: uh, grandson of yes uh Don DeJulio who's a great player here in our AD and just such a pillar of this university for many, many decades. Um, and then our sneakers represented Tess Boyle who is such a big part of oh, sure. you know St. Joseph's basketball story with she was like the mom of, of the program for a very long time and the husband the wife of one of our great coaches and coach Jim Boyle. So it just means a lot to us, you know, that we've been impacted a great deal here on Hawk Hill, as has other places. I'm not rating ours any worse than any place else, but for us it's a special opportunity to honor people for a great cause.
3: And Don DeGioia, as you hit the nail on the head, everyone loves Don DeGioia. Don DeGioia has done so many favors so for so many people, and his grandson yeah. is just a faith-filled superstar. Yeah. So, yes, he
2: is. Yes, he is.
3: I hope Thank that you. you have safe travels. And just for the listeners, we know the Hawk will never die because he flaps his wings never. nonstop, even during halftime, during every basketball game since 1956 the most decorated mascot by ESPN, uh, Sports Illustrated, uh, the uh, Mascot Hall of Fame. And, Coach, our parting question for you is, how many flaps per game does the Hawk provide?
2: Oh, man. It it depends on how much we're fouling at the end. (laughs) So um, it's around 4,000, I believe. It's around 4,000. And it depends on the length of the game and how quick the game is and how many timeouts. But it's in that number. I'm learning this as time goes on but what a great inspiration for our players to play to the final buzzer when you see someone over there giving such great effort in, in the country's best mascot and the you know, will never die
3: st. joseph was really a mean three pointer go hawks thank you for so much go coach hawks. lang love st. Joseph. thanks
2: dr Richie. god bless
3: god bless take care
1: And special thanks again to the head men's basketball coach at St. Joe's University for joining us here on Your Radio Doctor as we come to you on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. The one thing that is uh, certainly defined by your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne, is it is each week that you come on the air, uh, you provide information for us, and I include me in us, the listeners, Uh, helping us to get more educated. I can tell you this. I leave the program today, when it's all done, uh, more educated uh, than I was before we started.
3: Well, thank you, Joe. We were talking about different factors that increase your risk, some things like your family history. Uh, We also wanted to talk about race influencing your risk. African-Americans are 20% more likely to develop colon cancer and 40% more likely to die from it. And that has led to national discussion. A lot of our national societies, the American Cancer Society, our endoscopy societies, and the American College of GI, that we want to start uh, screening African-Americans at the age of 45. uh, And they seem to get a more more aggressive cell type as well. Um, So there are factors that we can influence, such as lifestyle choices, obesity, dietary factors, smoking and alcohol. How many times do we have to go over this? But we're going to say it again. So, Dave, what do you, what can you tell us about things in the diet that can affect your risk?
0: Um, so, uh, maintaining a normal weight, as you mentioned, um, is is important. If you know being obese does does significantly increase your risk for getting colon cancer. So, also, um, you know, exercising is is a positive, and um, eating a quote healthy diet. So, eating a diet that's low in animal fats and eating a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables. Um, So I advise people, you know, if you're overweight, try to lose some weight, try to exercise, and try to eat, you know, more healthy. Cut out the animal fats and try to eat more fruits and vegetables.
3: And it's interesting because um, we mentioned diabetes is also a risk factor, uh, but separate from obesity and being sedentary. Diabetes itself increases the risk for colon polyps and colon cancer. So let's talk about some of the dietary things themselves. We don't know if there are elements in the food that cause injury to the lining of the colon and start uh, cancer or if it's, as you say, being obese. But um, calcium from dairy and supplements seems to decrease the risk for polyps and cancer. Fiber, and this is really interesting because fiber may help because, and we're going to be polite here, but higher stool volume and faster transit may uh allow less exposure time if there are cancer-causing agents in our waste. So if your waste shoots through more quickly, maybe maybe that's a good thing and that is protective. It's not conclusive, the data, but the American Cancer Society says go with whole grains, fruits, and veggies, and um, it it definitely seems to have a trend. Red meat is not our enemy. Red meat is not the worst thing in the world. Um, I don't suggest that you eat a lot of it, but it may be the way it's cooked. High-temp cooking, curing, smoking seems to be more the enemy there. But the one that is dangerous is processed meats, lunch meats.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, <clears throat> uh, eating, a, that, would, that would be part of eating a, uh, an unhealthy diet, I would say. And that's also been shown, you know, for inflammatory bowel disease, going back to, you know, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, that increased, that those are conditions that have high risk for um, colon cancer. It also seems like eating a lot of uh, a diet that's high in processed foods um, is also just bad for that disease in general. So mm-hmm. there's a lot there's a lot to suggest that processed foods are not so
3: well, great. There's an international agency for research in cancer, um, and they describe processed meat as carcinogenic or cancer-causing in humans and that red meat is probably carcinogenic. Um, vitamin D may lower the risk. I think 75% of America is low in vitamin D. I don't know why. Smoking, not only does it increase your risk for colorectal cancer, it's also associated with a lower survival if you're a smoker when you're diagnosed and treated. Um, alcohol, the American Cancer Society, tells us stick to maximum one drink a day. If you're a woman, maximum two per day. If you're a man, that doesn't mean go ahead and do it. It means on any given day, one drink for a woman, two for men, because if the, in the lifetime of a person drinks two to three to, drinks per day, 20% higher risk of colon cancer. Three or more drinks a day, 40% increase in your risk. It's just not worth it.
1: So when I order my steak, at the when I go out and I order steak and I ask for the steak to be prepared, extremely rare? Is that good or no?
3: Well, I think if you don't ask for it to be Pittsburgh, you know what they put it on like 400 for a minute or two and the outside is blackened and sort of charcoal. It's those nitrates that... the and hot dogs. Remember, you see people grill hot dogs and get the black marks on them. Nitrates lead to stomach cancer as well, but the, the that process seems to bump the risk for colon cancer.
1: I'm making a lot of mistakes here today, Doc. Moderation, yes, Moderation. Sir. <laughs>
3: Exactly. And and you know, it's interesting. They say that the most active people have a 25 percent lower risk of colon cancer. And when you walk away, with those numbers, it's going to say. I'm going to go out and walk five times a week for a half hour.
1: One more segment to go on Your Radio Doctor here in Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. We hope you're enjoying the show on this Sunday morning. Don't forget, coming up uh, immediately uh, at the end of Your Radio Doctor, the sounds of Sinatra right here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Back in a moment.
3: Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is proudly provided by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners.
1: One segment to go on your radio doctor here on Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. I turn it back over to the host of the show, Dr. Marianne.
3: Doc? Thank you. We're having a great conversation with Dr. Dave Kastenberg, gastroenterologist, and big in research on the newer techniques for colon cancer screening. As well as making the bowel prep kinder. So let's finish. We were going to talk about the various screening tools that are available uh, when we want to look for polyps to prevent or actually early cancer.
0: Right. So just briefly, there's um, tests that can detect cancer, and then there's tests that can detect and prevent. So, in, and they're all approved tests. So, in terms of the detection tests, they're mostly stool tests. So there's, um, the guaiac test, which has really been replaced by the FIT test, which is just a stool sample that you don't have to be on a special diet. Um, it's run by a machine, so it's automated, and it picks up trace blood in the stool that the sources the colon. And if, if it's positive, all positive tests lead to colonoscopy. Right. There's also uh, this combination test where they combine the FIT test with the stool DNA test, and um, you've seen that advertised on TV a lot. That's called Cologuard. Um, that's done every few years. Um, and then in terms of the, um, detect and prevent strategies, well, the first one is colonoscopy. And then there's also flexible sigmoidoscopy. That's a short scope in the office that sees maybe 25% of the colon. And if it finds an abnormality, then you go on and have a colonoscopy. Um, it does decrease the chance of dying from colon cancer, but, um, there's a couple of problems with it. One is that the scopes need to be reprocessed and the, and there's such strict guidelines in terms of how that's done that it's really not being done in the office anymore because it just takes, it's, it's such high cost technology to reprocess these scopes. And, um,
3: but I think Dave too, if I may mm-hmm. think of your uh, GI track is I-95 and we're going to say that your colon is exit 20 to 30. So there are, let's see four or five areas to your colon, including the rectum. When a sigmoidoscope exam is done, it goes into the last three or four exits of I-95. And that was the biggest um, screening tool available in the 70s and 80s when, before colonoscopy was really accepted and, and perfected and more comfortable. And people would think, okay, I don't have to get sedated. And we thought at the time, I was still in training, that most colon cancers were within reach of this office exam, but um, you're uncomfortable, you're awake. And the going thinking was, if there's nothing there, well, what if there's something above? And if there is something there, if there are polyps, what if they have cousins up above? So the same odoscopy is better than doing nothing. Um, even now, we would say probably 40, 45% of colon cancers are in the left colon, which is, which is this area that's covered. But women... African-Americans and people who've had their gallbladder removed are all at increased risk for having only right-sided or only top-of-the-colon lesions.
0: You're right, Marianne. And also, there's you know two types of precancerous polyps, really. There's adenomas, which everyone knows of as polyps, and then there's these flat lesions, which people have heard of also. And those are, those are called um, serrated polyps. They're flat lesions. They carry the same precancerous risk. They're more common in women. They typically occur in the upper part of the colon, which you would not see with a flex. With a short scope, and, the, and which leads to this other test called a cat scan colonoscopy, <clears throat> which is a good test. Unfortunately, it's not covered by most insurances, mm-hmm. and it's not probably so great for finding flat, you know, flat polyps right. either.
3: And I think the other thing is anything that has the word virtual or DNA. People think Star Wars done push a button. No, um, cat scan colonography or virtual colonography, as Dr. Kastenberg mentioned, um, is a CAT scan version, and the digital subtraction will look at your colon and say, that spot, digital subtraction will say, it's real or memorex. It's a little bit of leftover stool, or is it a polyp? And if it's positive, we have to go in with colonoscopy anyway, so why not go to the finish line? And and it
0: requires a prep.
3: It requires a prep. You're awake. It requires a lot of air to open that tunnel and make sure that we're seeing everything. And it also has a perforation rate. We say about 1 in a 1,000 plus for colonoscopy. It's 1 in 1,700 for CT colonography. And it's radiation. So uh, it's better than doing nothing. Um, it's not as invasive, but it can miss a lot of polyps and uh, and some colon cancer. So um, if you're going to go through the trouble of doing the prep and all those good things, it, it makes sense to get sedated. And while we're there, if we find anything, make it history. So let's talk about the bowel prep, Dave, because that's a real passion for Dr. Kastenberg, uh, trying to get, if there's, I said earlier, if there's residual fluid or solid, it could hide important lesions, some not so small. I mean, we we know that. We've been doing this for a long time.
0: Right. Um, so uh, it's, it's really important to have a perfect look in the colon, and that's not going to happen without having a bowel prep. So unfortunately, you know, colonoscopy, is the screening test that requires work by the patient? It's not like going for a mammogram, um, where you just show up and you get it done. You have to you have to do your job before you get there. It's really important. There's two different types of preps. There's those that are have the same concentration as your as your blood, which um, don't cause as much disruption to your volume. They don't make you as dehydrated or mess up your electrolytes. And then there are hyperosmotic preps, which are more concentrated and they draw water and they may um, be some change with your electrolytes with your blood.
3: Like a power wash.
0: Exactly. But however you do it, the most important thing is to take part of the prep close to the time of the colonoscopy. We used to, in the old days, give the prep the day before, but now we know that the, that the most important risk for having a bad prep is having a long interval between when you finish the prep Mm. and when you show up for your colonoscopy. So in our practice at Jefferson, we always time the prep to the time of your colonoscopy such that you're going to finish that prep uh, a few hours before the colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. And now we know, you know, with anesthesia that you can be on clear liquids up until two hours before um, general anesthesia. So there's no reason to be dehydrated or starve, you know, overnight.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Kastenberg. What a wonderful treat to have you here today. Here are the takeaway messages, folks. Cancer, cancer, of the colon is number two cause of cancer death and mostly preventable. The risk is equal in men and women. Know your family history. It could make you get screened at an earlier age. One-third of people over 50 and a half of people over 60 get polyps. Not all polyps become cancer, but all cancer starts as a polyp. More people die of colon cancer than breast cancer. It's not a contest. They're both important. Um, And for all these reasons, I invite you to join the Blue Lights campaign. Look to the sky this week. All the large buildings and buildings in Philadelphia will shine in blue. March 4th begins the uh, show, the light show. Uh, one and two, Liberty Place, BNY Mellon, Pico, all my friends at Sierra, FMC, Boathouse Row, Franklin Institute, Ben Franklin Bridge, Pennsylvania State Capitol. They're going to give me two weeks. Put a blue light on your porch. Dress the front of your home or business in blue lights. Dress in blue yourself. Get a group of family or work colleagues and take a selfie of you in blue. Send the photo of you and your friends or your home or business to info at com and visit our website, www.bluelightscampaign.com. Send your photos and everybody who sees them, uh, sees the blue lights of Philadelphia, hopefully will be urged to hear the message that colon cancer is common often deadly, but preventable.
1: Great job, Dr. Marianne. Doc, I want to ask you one short question that I want to leave the audience with a message that resonates. If you're my age, give or take, 55, and you have not been screened or tested, as
0: I stand here today, I could could be in trouble, correct? Absolutely. So the most important thing is to come in for your screening. We make it so easy now. We have a direct access program. You don't even have to come in for a visit beforehand. Our our people will talk to you on the phone. We'll make sure that it's going to be a safe procedure. We'll give you all the instructions. We'll go over the details of the procedure. And all you need, you don't miss, need to miss extra work. You just show up for your procedure.
3: And it's really a gift when it's all over and you walk away and say, my slate is clean.
0: Well done.
1: Well said. Great job uh, by both today on your Radio Doctor here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. As we say goodbye on this Sunday morning, we encourage you to look for the blue lights. You'll hear that message reminder here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT on our sister station, KYW 1060. And around the Delaware Valley, look up in the sky for all of those blue lights. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Your Radio Doctor. On behalf of Dr. Marianne, our special guest... I'm Joe Krause. See you next time, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program
2: is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.